challenging. You're a right-handed person. All right, we have a couple of announcements uh, regarding Chafer Seminary spring registration. That started uh, Tuesday of this week, two days ago. And since uh, West Houston Bible Church and any church that is uh, contributes a certain amount to Chafer Seminary is a partner church, members of that church can take up to two classes tuition-free. And the application free is is usually normally thirty bucks. Registration fee is thirty bucks. You have to pay that, but that's waived if you register by midnight January seventh. So I am teaching or proctoring the Jewish life of Christ, life of Messiah. Those are Arnold's tapes. Arnold was here, actually taught the course from this pulpit, and uh, so that. That course, the audio is on our website, but the seminary has the videos and everything. So anyway, that that's uh, in my spare time. I take care of that this this spring, and then the memorial service for Bill Payne will be here on Saturday, January thirteenth, beginning at one in the afternoon. And so we move the men's prayer breakfast to the next weekend, to Saturday, uh, January twentieth, at seven thirty in the morning. I think that should do it. We do need nursery workers. So if we can get a couple of ladies to volunteer for one Sunday a month, then we can handle the situation uh, in the nursery. So see Russell Gates or Alex Monzone about that. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So before we get started, I'm going to add one announcement, and that is that if you manage to show up for Bible class on Tuesday night and nobody was here, uh, we do have a, an email list that you ought to sign up for on the westhoustonbiblechurch.org website. Sign up for the uh, email list, and that way you'll be alerted so that if we have inclement weather and decide not to have class that night to keep everybody safe, then, um, then it'll be good. It was real iffy the other night, but it looked like it was going to get really bad right in the middle of Bible class. That happened once before. For those of you who weren't here about 14 years ago, it happened one night. We all got here. We got in here. Bible class started, and then just it was a spring thunderstorm, and it just broke loose. And all the streets all around us, including the Beltway, flooded. Nobody could leave here until 1130. We tried. We'd get out on the... We'd get out on the uh, feeder out here, and you could go about 100 yards, and then you had to back up. And uh, so we decided that it's better to just, because this area will flood badly, it's better to be safe than nobody wants to camp out here overnight. So we'll just, uh, we take care of things like that. So get on the mailing list, and that way you can uh, take care of those things. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. And uh, make sure we are spiritually prepared to study this evening, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray.
Father, it's so great that we can come together this evening and just to fellowship around your word, to think about the fact that you have revealed this to you, to give us your thoughts, to help us to understand uh, who you are and uh, what the problems are between your creatures and you, the creator, to understand what is to be our priorities in this life and that we are to serve you and that our lives are to be a living sacrifice to you. So, Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand these things and the mechanics for living the spiritual life as we study tonight. In Christ's name, amen. All right, tonight we're going to look at Epaphroditus. Last week we looked at Timothy, and tonight we're looking at Epaphroditus as the fourth example that Paul is giving in relation to what it means to be humble, to serve the Lord out of humility. Uh, And actually, as we'll see, this goes back to his opening introduction in the main body, which uh, comes at the end of chapter 1, emphasizing two things. That is being steadfast in unity and being of one mind. So this is how he starts it in Philippians 1.27, He says, only let your conduct, and here he uses a distinctive word, polytuomai, which comes from a Greek word having to do with citizenship. And here he's talking about being, uh, it's a word that would have meant a lot to the Philippians because it was a Roman colony. And so they understand it's an idiom. And as an idiom, it means that they are to conduct themselves in a manner Uh, worthy of their position, worthy of the fact that they have a unique position. And our citizenship, you'll, you'll hear people say, our citizenship is in the kingdom. No, it's not. Our citizenship is in the body of Christ. We are not related to the kingdom yet. That's in the future. And he's talking about a present tense reality. We're to conduct ourselves in a certain way now. And so we're not under the Old Testament law. We're not in the dispensation of Israel. We are in the church. We're doing things not for the kingdom per se right now. We're doing it for the church. Now, I understand that Paul uses that phrase a couple of times, but he uses it in a proleptic sense. But people today are not sophisticated enough in English to understand what proleptic means. And that is that we're living a certain way today because of the way it's going to impact us when we are in the kingdom in the future. It is not a way of talking about the fact that we are in the kingdom now in any way, shape, or form. The kingdom is the messianic kingdom where Christ is on the throne in Jerusalem ruling over all of the nations. That's how it's used in the Old Testament. And so when we talk, people today everywhere, they pick up this really loosey-goosey, sloppy language And, oh, we're going to do this for the kingdom and that for the kingdom. And you never hear anybody say, no, we have to do this because we're part of the body of Christ and that's our role. And that's what the emphasis is in Ephesians and Colossians and in um, uh, Philippians. So that's what he's talking about, that we are to conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel of Christ. He doesn't say worthy of the kingdom. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit. That's the thing he's emphasizing, being steadfast. And second, with one mind, striving together. That word for striving together 
is a word that means basically to work together. It's soon athleo. Do you think of an English word that might derive from athleo? Athletics, athlete, striving for something, working together for something. So we're to do it with one mind. And so this is the emphasis. So we have reviewed this, that Paul has challenged the Philippians uh, to quit, not quite fix that spelling, uh, to quit being self-absorbed, pursuing their own agendas. And see, he knows this. Because he has eyes and ears everywhere. And one of his sets of eyes and ears is the messenger that came to him from Philippi, who is the subject of our study this evening, who's Epaphroditus. And he has reported on the fact that there are some problems in the congregation. There's some little bickering going on between some people. There's some divisiveness going on. Some of the people are a little self-absorbed and focused on their own agendas rather than the agenda of Christ. And so Paul is going to gently deal with that in the course of this epistle, which is really a thank you uh, thank you letter because Epaphroditus brought a financial uh, gift to him, which we'll get to in a minute. So he is uh, challenging them to quit being self-absorbed and pursuing their own agendas and to pursue Christ-like character of humility and service to the body of Christ. The first example is Jesus Christ in his humility. He humbled himself to the point of death. So that's the starting point. Then Paul himself is the second example that he talks about himself being poured out at like a drink offering on their sacrifice and service to the Lord. In the Old Testament, a drink offering would be poured out on a burnt offering, which indicated a person's total commitment uh, to the Lord, that everything was burned up, everything went to the Lord and went up in smoke. And so you would pour the drink offering in that, and when you pour alcohol on a fire, what happens? It flames up even more. So this is a very dramatic way of demonstrating one's, one's commitment. Third example we looked at last week is Timothy, and then tonight we're looking at Epaphroditus. In Romans 12, 1, I pointed this out last week, where Paul says, I employ you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves, your bodies, a living sacrifice set apart to the service of God, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Two key words are used here. One is the word thusia, which is the word service, and the other, uh, or excuse me, which is the word sacrifice, and the other is the word latreia for service. Now, this is a particular kind of service. The word we have in English that comes from this is the word liturgy. A liturgy is that which is related to our worship of the Lord. Now, you can go to what are called high church worship service, and they have a very formal liturgy. Sometimes you have people in independent Bible churches, Plymouth Brethren churches, things like that, who say, well, we don't have a liturgy. You have an order of service. That's a liturgy. It's just a less formal liturgy than what you have in a, a maybe a more formal worship service, like in the Anglican church or Episcopal church. 
So this is our service of worship. Our life is a service of worship. And so as Paul uh, pointed out what he had done in his example that he's poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service, he uses the same two words there. So it connects back. It gives us an illustration here of what Paul is talking about in, in Romans 12, 1. So the picture there of 217 is that Paul sees his life, his ministry, to be analogous to that burnt, burnt I mean, the drink offering is poured out on the burnt offering. And he's going to use these examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus as a picture of the kind of uh, sacrifice and service that should characterize a mature believer. So these are those two examples. So we looked at Timothy last time where he talks about his desire to send Timothy to them shortly that they may be encouraged. So Timothy would be serving and will serve for a short time as the, the pastor there in Philippi. Later he will go on to be the pastor in uh, Ephesus for some time. And he'll be in Ephesus when Paul writes First and Second Timothy. Now the way I point that out is because even from this early church period, the pastors moved around at times. They didn't always just go to one church and stay there for uh, for their whole life. And we know that some pastors do that, and there have been a number of very prominent examples in a number of churches where they've had a pastor for a very, very long time. Some people get the idea that when you see a pastor moves around, that, that that may be not right. But you saw him move around a lot in the early church, and it wasn't always for the wrong reason. Now, sometimes they they move around for the wrong reason. Uh, they can move around for a wrong reason on the part of the congregation because the congregation isn't really uh, positive to the Word of God, and so they uh, they will remove the pastor and on the other hand, you have pastors who, for whatever reason, um, need other things you have, that are legitimate. They need a congregation that can support them and support their family. And sometimes they aren't getting that. Sometimes you have a pastor who has a certain vision for what he needs to accomplish or would like to accomplish in a local church. And then, um, but the local church just doesn't get on board with it. I always thought it was somewhat humorous in the second church that I pastored, which was in Irving. It was a church that split out of Irving Bible Church. And Irving Bible Church, this, this is in the 80s, okay? So Irving Bible Church was infamous because they had a young pastor that had had a difficult time at his first church, which was up in the suburb of Boston. And um, his parting sermon there was entitled, Why I'm Leaving This Sinking Ship. He was originally from Houston, and then he went to Irving and was at Irving Bible Church for about four years, and they fired him. He left there, and he went out to Fullerton, California, and all of a sudden people started hearing Chuck Swindoll on the radio, and, well, you know the rest of the story. But some of those people, when they fired Chuck, decided after a few years they wanted a different set of leaders than they had over at Irving Bible Church, so they started another church, and that was the one uh, one that I pastored for a while. 
and uh, and that was an in, in, interesting thing there. But it was it just shows that in church life there's there's good problem good good things that happen, bad things that happen. Some things are the result of of immature leadership, which is what Irving Bible Church had at the time. And I knew and, and had met every elder that fired Chuck Swindoll. And uh, they had a great men's group at that church, and they would take, every spring they would take a group down and go camping and canoe, canoeing on the Guadalupe River, and I'd go down with them. And those guys would just shake their heads. They didn't have any idea what it was. And, of course, by the end of the 80s, Irving Bible Church had become a mega church, And, uh, you know, leadership has to understand that God gives the pastor a vision, and that they need to go with that vision. That when they have a vision that conflicts with the pastor, then you're going to have problems. And that happens in a, in, a, in a lot has happened in a lot of different churches. So anyway, last time we talked about Timothy and his ministry, and tonight we're going to talk about Epaphroditus. And so we'll look a little bit at Epaphroditus. And one of the distinctive things about Epaphroditus that we'll see is that he's only mentioned twice in the New Testament, and that's here in Philippians. The other thing is he is an example uh, that you that always brings up issues in relationship to the doctrine of healing. So we'll take a look at that as well as we go forward. So we ask the question, who was Epaphroditus? What do we know about him? When we looked at Timothy last time, we could go back to Acts. Timothy was mentioned several times. We knew about his grandmother and his mother. We know how he he came to the Lord. We don't know any of that with Epaphroditus. We don't know whether he is Jewish with a Gentile name, which was very common at that time. Uh, We don't know if he came out of a pagan Jewish family, one that was secular, not observant, because the name Epaphroditus was was a... uh, a, a Greek name. So what we do know about him is that he was a spiritual leader in the church at Philippi. He's never described as an elder, but he is described as a messenger from the church at Philippi to Paul. And we'll look at that too because that's important because the word messenger in the Greek is apostolos, apostle. So he's called an apostle. So what does that mean? Because today you have all kinds of people who pop up, say, I'm an apostle. Next thing you know, they're they're calling themselves an apostle and a bishop and all kinds of other self-anointings that take place. So we'll have to mention a little bit about that. Second, he had been commissioned by that church. I use that word specifically because... The word apostle has the idea of someone who's commissioned by a higher authority to execute a mission. It comes out of a military background. It was used to refer to uh, naval officers and the commission they would receive receive and then to go on a particular uh, military mission. So he's got a specific mission. He's commissioned by the church to bring a financial gift to the Apostle Paul, and then to stay with Paul and to assist him and to serve him in any way necessary. Uh, Third, we know that soon after arriving, he became deathly ill. They thought he was going to die, and, uh, and yet the Lord intervened and healed him. 
Uh, his friends back home in Philippi had heard about this, and they were distressed and concerned about him. And he learned of their concern, and he's worried that they're worried. And that may be a little background when you get to Philippians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 and 7, where Paul says, be anxious for nothing. They've been anxious about uh, Epaphroditus. So God restored his health, so we'll talk a little bit about that. And 6, he desired to go home to set their concerns to rest. And some people may think, well, maybe he should have stayed with Paul. But the way Paul expresses it is Paul encouraged that. So he may have, if he was that ill with COVID 0.1, then um, they wanted to, uh, Paul may have said, you need to go home and, and, uh, and get out of the line of fire here in Rome and just convalesce and the Lord will use you in other ways. So Paul agreed and used the opportunity to write this thank you letter to the Philippians. So the name Epaphroditus, you'll notice in the name I have underlined the center part of the name, Aphrodite. Where do you think that came from? That's a name that embodies the name of the Greek goddess, the Greek goddess of beauty and love, Aphrodite. And so the name actually carries the connotation of someone who's lovely or charming, fascinating or gracious. But it's clearly a pagan name uh, with the middle syllable reflecting the name of Aphrodite. Now, we don't know what that means. I don't think you can draw any conclusions because uh, there are a lot of Christian families who don't even look up what a name might mean, and uh, they give names to their children that may have a rather pagan connotation, or there may be pagans who give their children Christian names uh, without knowing what that means. We just think a name is a name, and it really doesn't have any, any meaning or significance. So as we get into this, in the first verse, Paul introduces the sort of the fact of, of Epaphrodite, Epaphroditus, who he is, and what's going on. And he says, I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. So see, just because Epaphroditus is going to go back because uh, he's concerned about the people being concerned about him, Paul thinks it's necessary for him to go back. He uses a strong word to describe that. I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. But your messenger and the one who ministered to my name. Now, when Paul was under house arrest in Rome, and remember he had been arrested originally in Jerusalem. He's under arrest and sort of uh, in a gilded cage at Caesarea Maritima where the the procurator had his headquarters uh, for a couple of years, but he's getting somewhat impatient because he wants to get on with his ministry. So he appealed to Rome and he uh, takes a ship to Rome. There's a shipwreck. Eventually he got to Rome And now he's under house arrest in Rome for approximately two years. 
And a lot is happening all around him, and God's using that in some tremendous ways. And then one day, he received a visitor from Philippi. And Epaphroditus is a leader at the church in Philippi who was sent by them to Paul to bring him a financial gift. Uh, Remember, they are the ones who supported him from the very beginning. He left Philippi, he went to Thessaloniki, and while he was in Thessaloniki, he received even financial aid then, and he said nobody else was was financially supporting him. But he says in uh, Corinthians that he... Um, that they gave from their poverty, those believers in Macedonia, and that's where Philippi was located, they gave from their poverty, uh, not from their excess, not from their wealth, but from their poverty. So they uh, were uh, very faithful in their support of the Apostle Paul. And so uh, Epaphroditus had to travel approximately 800 miles Uh, carrying with him a significant amount of money. Now, 800 miles is a little bit further than the distance from downtown Houston to downtown El Paso. So that's across, that's probably about as far as from maybe uh, the other side of Baytown and from that to all the way to, to El Paso. So that's a pretty far distance, especially when you think that they, he didn't even have a bicycle. He's got to walk it if he walked it. And so that would have been a long journey. It would have taken him about a month, but they had very good roads in the Roman Empire. In fact, you can still see them around different places in Europe. But if he took a ship, he would have gone down the Achaean Peninsula in Greek Greece down to Corinth, and there he would have caught a ship across to... Uh, across to Rome, and that would have been a much shorter trip, maybe as short as as two weeks. And so he has arrived and brought this offering, which in Philippians 4.18, Paul describes as a gift, the gift as a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So he arrived, and not soon, not, not soon, too soon after he arrived, he is struck down with an illness that almost proves fatal. So we have no idea what it is. People say, well, what, what, what kind of disease was it? Nobody knows. And it may have been, you know, COVID 0.1, or it could have been the flu, or it could have been uh, a plague of some sort. Nobody knows. But he was about to die. He was on the edge of death, but God spared him. As as Paul said, and so he has this opportunity now to write a thank you letter to the um, to the congregation in Philippi. It's interesting when I grew up, when probably when most of you grew up, your parents taught you to write thank you notes and thank you letters uh, when you received gifts from people, and that seems to be a rare thing today, uh, even a text or an email. Uh, to express thanks, it would be something. But I noticed that uh, oftentimes when gifts are given that uh, nobody ever says thank you anymore, but that's an important thing to, to do. And so Paul thanks them and encourages them in, um, in the way they have treated Epaphroditus. 
And during this time, as Epaphroditus is with him, he may have spent a couple of months there in Rome before he left. He gives Paul a pretty good rundown on what is happening among the believers uh, back there in, in Philippi. So we have learned a few things about Epaphroditus as we look at this. And when we look at what Paul says in Philippians 2.25, he identifies him with three very important terms. First of all, he calls him my brother. Second, he calls him a fellow worker. And third, he calls him a fellow soldier. And then he says that he is a messenger from Philippi and he ministered to Paul's needs. So there's a lot packed in to this one verse. When he calls him my brother, this is a term for a fellow believer. While the term brother at a couple of places, which you can identify by context, could be speaking about uh, two fellow Jews, primarily in the New Testament it is talking about believers, believers who are both uh, in the body of Christ. They are in the family of God, but more specifically, they are in the church, the body of Christ. And so they have been adopted. This is not something that happened in the Old Testament other than the adoption of Israel, but in the New Testament were adopted by God in the church. And so we've become part of the family of God as a result of that and part of the spiritual family of the church. And so he refers to him as a, as a brother. And as a brother, he is doing the same thing that Timothy is doing. He is serving the Lord. So they are both examples of what was uh, said a few verses back, that we are to shine as lights in the midst of a uh, crooked and perverted generation. So Epaphroditus and Titus are both shining as lights, and this is part of it. They are functioning within uh, within the body of Christ. Second thing that we should note about this is this term of endearment to someone else in the body of Christ is uh, distinctive for Paul in this epistle. He uses it uh, some nine times in this epistle, and that is the most of any of the prison epistles. He is using this a number of ways, so there's a, that indicates a close experiential uh, fellowship and intimacy that Paul has with uh, not only with the Philippian believers, but with Epaphroditus as well. So it is a term that is expresses a certain level of affection uh, for Epaphroditus. So it seems that both Timothy and Epaphroditus are close to Paul, and both of them are very, uh, very faithful. Second, we see the term fellow worker. This is the term soon ergos. Ergos is a word for work. Uh, we use that in describing certain measurements in electricity today. Uh, it is a term for a, a helper or fellow worker. And it is used of uh, a number of 
those who worked with the Apostle Paul. For example, he describes Apollos as a fellow worker, Aquila and Priscilla, uh, Aristarchus, Clement, Mark, Onesimus, Philemon, Timothy, Titus are all fellow workers, and many others he describes as fellow workers. So that means they are uh, involved in the ministry, serving the Lord in various capacities. And then he describes them as fellow soldiers. Fellow soldiers is the word sus, that that su is a preposition meaning with. So that's always when it's fellow something or other, it's sus. You have the su at the beginning of sun ergos. Sus stratiotes. That's where we get our word strategy. So it's related to military strategy and military work. And it emphasizes the fact that we are soldiers. We're in a battle. If you haven't figured that out, you need to wake up. That once you are transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son, which happens at the instant of salvation, guess what? You've got a target on your back, and we are in spiritual warfare. That's the subject we'll get to in Ephesians, in Ephesians 6, Uh, 10 through 18. Very, very important. And the primary battlefield is between our ears. That's where the battle takes place. And the key weapon is the Word of God. And we're to stand fast on the Word of God. But if we don't know the Word of God, uh, we're in deep trouble. And in this warfare, we have to deal with two types of, or actually three types of enemies in reference to the church. You have those that are outside the church, the unbelievers, and they attack Christians with various um, false religions and and false philosophies, false worldviews that uh, sometimes are very attractive to our sin nature. And so we have these enemies that are outside the church, and we have enemies that are inside the church. We have those that become distracted with false teaching. For example, the Judaizers who followed Paul to uh, Galatia and other places who were saying that, no, 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 no. It's great that Jesus died for our sins, but you also have to follow the Mosaic Law and you have to follow the certain rituals, uh, especially circumcision for the men if you're really going to be saved Are you really going to live the spiritual life? So they're always adding something to faith, faith plus some sort of ritual for either salvation or for sanctification. So we're in a battle. And those who serve in the ministry at different levels, this could be deacons, this could be Sunday school teachers, this could be uh, pastors, uh, this can be anybody who's involved. You have a lot of people in this congregation who minister to other members of this congregation. And every now and then I hear about it, and I'm always pleased to hear that we have members who pay attention to those who are, and we have a few elderly that are shut-ins, and they go visit them. And we have a few widows that uh, take care of other widows. And these things are done just by the motivation of spiritually mature uh, believers. And so people who are involved in any kind of ministry and service within the body of Christ make themselves a real target of Satan. And when um, you get it, we get into Ephesians 6.10, 
and it talks about their our warfare that it Paul makes a point it's not against flesh and blood it's against the principalities and powers that are behind them and those are the demonic forces that are seeking to destroy the impact of the church so he really uh, builds up Epaphroditus here by calling him a brother a fellow worker and a fellow uh, a fellow soldier in Philemon 2, he also uses this term to refer to uh, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. So he uses this term uh, related to others. Now, I'm going to compare him with Timothy. Timothy, we saw last time, is described as Paul's fellow worker also in Romans 16:21 and 1 Thessalonians 3:2 and his brother as well uh 2 Corinthians 1:1 1, 1, Colossians 1:1 1, 1, 1 Thessalonians 3:2 uh a bond servant which is not used of Epaphroditus uh, Philippians 1:1 1, 1, a beloved and faithful child in the Lord a son and someone co-equal in the Lord's work so he's giving high praise. These are men that are shining forth as lights in the, wi- in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. But he also uses the term apostle when he uses this phrase that he is uh, a messenger from Philippi. And so I want to talk a little bit about what apostle means. Apostle has the idea of someone who is commissioned by someone in authority to a particular task or mission. Now, it's important that you think precisely about this because there are a lot of people who go to others like Junius, they'll cite Epaphroditus as well, and say, see, there are others who are called apostles. And you have to distinguish between those who are directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul always emphasized. And he emphasized the fact that as an apostle, you had to have been, this is Apostle capital A, you had to have been a witness to the resurrected Christ. And you had to have been commissioned directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this was limited to the 11 of the disciples minus Judas and the Apostle Paul. So those who were, those 11 commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ uh, are one category, uh, the 11 plus Paul, which would be 12, and those commissioned by local churches. Now later, Paul and Barnabas are going to, and Mark, are going to be commissioned by the church at Antioch in Syria to go out and, and, proclaim the gospel, to evangelize those who are not saved, and to expand Christianity on their missionary journeys. And so Barnabas is referred to as an apostle, but he is not an apostle with a capital A. He is an apostle with a lowercase a because he's not commissioned by Christ, and he's not given the same mission as the apostle's uppercase A, and he doesn't have the ability to perform the signs that Paul refers to in uh, 2 Corinthians 12.12, 12, where he says that we performed 
uh, the signs um, of an apostle among you, signs and wonders. So there were these signs were the credentials of the uppercase, capital A, apostles. So that's a limited, limited group. Second, that spiritual gift applied only to the 11 plus the apostle Paul that were commissioned directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. Since the Lord Jesus Christ ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and the only time that he appears a second time is in Acts 9 when he commissions Paul, anybody who claims to be an apostle today has to be pretty old, at least... 900, uh, at least about uh, 2,000 years old, 1,900 years old, uh, to be directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can pretty much guess that somebody who calls himself an apostle, and I've met a couple of these guys, that they are either biblically, willfully ignorant, which is the case for some because they just grew up in traditions that are very loose with the scriptures, or they are extremely arrogant but in almost every case, they teach a lot of false doctrine because they're just not biblically literate or educated. And I haven't met one yet uh, that really knows how to dr- correctly handle the Word of God. So the, the, the capital A apostle was limited to the 11 plus the apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians twelve twenty-eight, they not only have a commissioning and an office but they have a spiritual gift. It was a temporary spiritual gift. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, and God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. So there's a hierarchy there, one, two, and three. And then the others are, he says, miracles, gifts of healings, helps, administrations, and varieties of tongues. There were also interpretations of tongues. Tongues just means languages and were known um, human languages. And so these gifts that I underlined, apostles, prophets, miracles, healings, and varieties of tongues are all temporary gifts. Now somebody said, well, I know a situation where somebody had, that where a miracle was performed. And I say, it doesn't say God doesn't perform miracles or God doesn't heal. It says that the gifts of miracles and the gifts of healing were temporary. The way a gift operated, when you look at Peter and John going into the temple in Acts 3, and the lame man is there who's begging for alms so he can survive, and and they say that, well, we don't have any money, but what we have we'll give to you. And they gave him the gospel and healed him. And he was immediately leaping for joy. The key word there is that he immediately is completely, totally, absolutely healed. And that's a characteristic you see in the healings of Christ and the healings of the apostles. There is an immediate transformation. It's not gradual. It does, it, it, it's not the result of, of um, a process of, of, of healing. So these were temporary, temporary gift. And uh, then my third point is simply they, uh, those who call themselves apostles today are false apostles. 
So then in the next few verses, Paul is going to give the reasons for the return of Epaphroditus back to Philippi, because he was supposed to be there and to stay in order to help and assist Paul. And so he's going to give three reasons. First of all, that Epaphroditus is longing for them and is distressed because he's worried that they're worried about his health. And we just don't know what it was. We don't know if he had some minor heart attack or if he had some whatever it was. It's not worth speculating. Second, uh, he's going to send him back so they can rejoice at having him back with him. Obviously, he is a well-respected and well-loved member of their church. Third, that Paul might be less sorrowful himself. So there's some sorrow there on Paul's part that he's not with them because he knows of their close close relationship. So we look at these three reasons are explained in Philippians 2, 26 and 27. Paul says, since he, meaning Epaphroditus, was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. So Epaphroditus seems to be someone who is uh, fairly uh, attuned and sensitive to the fact that these people care a lot about him and that he cares about, he's hearing that they're really upset that after this long journey, he almost died. And so they're distressed about that. And so he, too, is he's concerned that they're so worried about him. And then Paul explains in verse 27, for indeed he was sick almost unto death. So he he almost died. He came very close. They expected him to die. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Now, this shows how close he was to Epaphroditus. But it also shows that, that there must have been prayer here. It doesn't say it, but we can assume that the Apostle Paul would be praying for Epaphroditus. But what's interesting is he doesn't heal Epaphroditus. He doesn't go in and anoint him with oil, which is mentioned in James 5, which is a total uh, misrepresentation of James 5. James 5 is not talking about physical illness. James 5 is talking about the problem that is what James is addressing, which is how to be strong in the midst of trials and testing. That's introduced at the very beginning. The whole epistle is about how to handle trials and difficulties. And some people try to slip sickness in there, but that's that's just immature and uh, you don't do your homework. I, I say that I just read, was spot reading in a new uh, study Bible. and That's one of the first passages I go to to see if somebody's paid attention to the Greek there. And they always say, well, there's this special anointing. No, it's not. There's two words in Greek for anointing. One is the word creo, which is where we get our word Christos, which talks about the anointed one, the Mashiach of Israel. So there were a lot of people who were anointed. Kings were anointed, priests were anointed. This is a term that relates to a ritual or religious anointing. And it and it's, it has its root in that word creo. Then there's another word that refers to just the everyday washings of a person. So if you got up in the morning, you washed your face, that would be described by alepho. If you got up and you decided that you would shave or you would take a shower 
and uh, maybe you would rub some uh, sunscreen on your on your face, not today probably, but um, sometime just to protect your skin or just various other ways in which you would anoint yourself with oil, uh, that would be an everyday type of, of treatment. And so you, that was what you do. That's not religious. That's not ritual. But that's the word that's used there. And so this idea of anointing somebody with oil as some sort of religious or ritual function so they'll get healed is based on a total misunderstanding of the Greek word used there. In fact, where it's used is over in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is talking about people, about the Pharisees, the religious guys that are, um, that are fasting. And they want everybody to know they're fasting. So when they get up in the morning, they're not going to shave they're not going to brush their hair. Uh, they're going to put, wear the same clothes they've worn for the last three or four days because they want everybody to know how holy they are. And so they're not going to wash their face or comb their hair or anything like that. And they, they may even be depressed. And what Paul says, and what James says is, okay, you've got somebody who is weak, not sick. The words there are very clear. These are words in, in James 5 that are talking about Physical weakness, I mean spiritual weakness, not physical sickness. And what's James writing about in the epistle of James? How to be spiritually strong in the midst of testing and trials. And so he says, so if you have somebody who is weak, uh, let him call for the elders. And what he means by elders, this is the first epistle, I believe, that was written. And it's long before Paul lays out the organizational structure of a local church. He just means the spiritually mature. And whoever wrote the notes for this passage in this study Bible actually got that right. He didn't translate it as elders. He understood that these were just calling for spiritually mature believers to pray for him. And these believers are going to come alongside and they're going to say, okay, you're feeling down in the dumps. You feel defeated. You feel discouraged. What you need to do is you need to uh, get up, go in there, take a shower, put on some clean clothes, shave, put on some deodorant. Um, as one of my uh, uh, military cadre in ROTC used to say, the sergeant would say, you got to put on the no stink and smell good. And then you're going to feel better. That's the idea in James 5. So that has absolutely nothing to do with healing. And um, this is what... so. It, Paul doesn't do anything. He prays for him, but he doesn't try to do any kind of ritual to heal Epaphroditus. So already you see these early miracles of healing that were at the beginning of Acts are already fading away. This is early 60s in the first century. And by then they're already beginning to fade away. A little bit later, he's going to write to Timothy and tell him, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. He doesn't say, well, go find one of the other uh, elders in the church and anoint you with oil and pray over you and you'll be healed from that stomach problem. And so we have to understand that these things are already dying out. So the one of the ideas that we have to face here, look at here is that when, when this passage is talking about Epaphroditus, he was sick unto death, What's Paul talking about? He's talking about the fact that you need to look at this example, that he was willing to serve God even though it might have cost him his life. 
And that takes us back to Philippians 2.8, where the first example, the Lord Jesus Christ, was obedient to the point of death. That is part of our job, is to serve the Lord and let the Lord take care of our safety. Let the Lord take care of our of our physical needs, and our job is just to do what he said. So we've already introduced the topic of healing, and we ought to answer this question because people say, well, why didn't Paul heal him? He could have done it. Apparently not. So we have to understand some things about what the Bible teaches about healing. And there are four questions that come up. Does God heal today? So first question. Second question Does God want you to be healthy and wealthy? That's what's called the health and wealth or the prosperity gospel. Second, why did Jesus and the apostles heal? Let's understand what's going on here in the Bible. Why did they heal? If if they were had the gift of healing, why didn't they go out to where the lepers were and just heal every one of them? Why didn't they just go up and down the streets and have people bring their sick and crippled and lame out and just go down the row and heal them? They didn't do that. They were very selective at who was healed, and they, they it wasn't the normal thing uh, that they did except on a few occasions, and there was a reason for it. And the fourth is, was faith necessary to be healed? Now, some of you have heard me tell this story, and it's in the Spiritual Warfare book. But in 1952, the um, Harris County had the last great outbreak of polio in the U.S. And in July of uh, 52, my mother contracted polio. And as a child and growing up, I never saw her walk. She was always, uh, a few times when I was young, she still tried to wear braces and tried to get get around that way like uh, President Roosevelt did. He He never walked as an adult. He always had braces on or somebody was propping him up or holding him up. Uh, But she tried that and then pretty much gave up on that uh, because it was obvious God wasn't going to restore her muscles so that she could could walk. And I remember as a little boy, uh, uh, when I became conscious of the fact that, that other mothers weren't in wheelchairs, and I was asking questions about it, and she was would explain things, and she said, well, you can pray that God will heal me. Now, the Bible talks about having some reason prayers aren't answered is because we don't have faith like a child. Well, I was a child. I had faith like a child. I truly believed with every cell in my body that God would heal my mother. And for years, probably from between like six when I was saved until I was about 10 or 11 and learned a little more, I would pray every night my my uh, nightly prayers, my bedtime prayers, that God would heal heal my mother. And he never did. God has a reason for these things. I don't know what they are. But God, who's omniscient, uh, knows everything there is to know. And he... He more, as John Hintz likes to say, over 99% of the time, God knows the right thing to do and does it. And we usually have, you know, just 
just hardly an infinitesimal amount of information, and we're sitting there on the basis of that information and say, well, God, you know, I think you really need to do this about that. And, and God says, well, you don't have a clue what you're talking about, so why don't you just go about what I want you to do and let me worry about the other stuff? And so um, this idea of faith being necessary to heal, that wasn't even true in the Scriptures. So let's ask the first question, does God heal today? And first answer to that is that God has healed historically through a variety of different means. First, we realize that God has healed indirectly or uh, immediately. That means he, it's mediated through somebody else, uh, through an agent. And there's two categories of this kind of healing, either supernatural or natural. So you would look at the fact that in the natural sense, um, this is um, through a doctor, and the doctor's using pharmaceuticals and surgery and therapy, and people are healed. In the supernatural sense, there's just this automatic shift through an agent, someone with the gift of healing. And we don't see that today. We also see that God heals directly, and that is when we pray. We pray that God would heal somebody. A great example is the way God worked with David Dunn. Notice it wasn't instantaneous. It's not like a New Testament healing, but God provided the doctors. He provided uh, the means and the knowledge and all of the medical staff, and everything came together at the right time. And it's just amazing how well uh, David has done. So the issue is not, does God heal today? Because he does. And we pray for healing. Those of us here at West Houston Bible Church have prayer meeting every Tuesday night, and we pray, and we see people healed. We see people who aren't healed. But one time I went to a um, vineyard spiritual warfare conference out in California as part of research for doctoral project, and... Um, and I heard a speaker say, well, those people in Bible churches, they don't really, they don't really believe that God's going to answer their prayers for healing. They don't pray for healing. And I went, what a lie. Every church I've been in has had prayer lists and prayer meetings where people pray and believe that if it's God's will, he will heal. He will provide healing for people. But God sometimes says, no. No, this is a test for them, and they need to go through this test. And that's what I thought of with my mother. I don't know why God had me have a mother that was in a wheelchair. I have some suspicions. My mother was pretty strong-willed, and I think the Lord put a bridle on her with that wheelchair. But I don't know. Um, but anyway, so the issue today is how has God revealed that he heals today? And has God revealed that we should expect his intervention in our illnesses, diseases, and deformities as a normal, that's the key word, as a normal experience in the Christian life? See, we believe God can intervene 
But we don't believe that his intervention is the normative experience in the Christian life. And that's what separates us from those in the Pentecostal charismatic uh, movement. Second question is, why did Jesus and the apostles heal? Was faith and or salvation a prerequisite for healing? In other words, did a person have to be a believer in order to be healed? Or do we have examples of unbelievers being healed, those who never made any kind of uh, profession or indication that they believed in Christ? Uh, or even faith at the time. Did did Christ heal people that, that didn't even believe in him? He just healed them. So Jesus healed to present his messianic credentials. In Isaiah 42, 7, says that Messiah is going to come to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. When John the Baptist was in the prison and his faith was wobbly and he began to doubt, he sent his messengers and he's, he's, he wants to get confirmation. Are you the one that, that was prophesied? And Jesus said, go back and tell him that the blind see and the lame walk and the lepers are healed. And he'll know. That comes out of Isaiah. That was one of the credentials. Isaiah twenty nine eighteen, And on that day the deaf shall hear words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. That's the prophecy about the Messiah. Isaiah 35, 4. Uh, say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you then. After this deliverance, so that's the second coming when the Messiah comes to establish his kingdom. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped and then the lame will leap like a deer. See, that's actually quoted in the Gospels, that this is what Jesus says to John the Baptist, that you're seeing it. It's a sign that I am indeed uh, the Messiah. So under the first point, healings were never performed merely for their physical benefit. There was always some sort of spiritual significance or spiritual lesson. Matthew eight seventeen it foreshadowed messianic fulfillment of Isaiah fifty three. By his stripes we are healed. Matthew nine six, along with Mark two ten and Luke five twenty four, uh, did demonstrated because he told the the paralyzed man get up and walk, and he did. And then they said, well, how can you do that? And he said, well, if I, he said first, I mean, before he healed him, he said, your sins are forgiven. He said, you wouldn't believe that his sins were forgiven unless I had demonstrated I had power over his paralysis. So because I could heal him, you know that I can, I can, have, I can forgive him. Matthew uh, eleven two through 19, it confirmed his identity to John the Baptist when he was in prison. And in Matthew twelve fifteen to 21, it foreshadowed the fulfillment of Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, which will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. In John 9, 3, where it gives sight to the man who had been blind from birth, it demonstrated the reality of Christ as the light of the world. Only Jesus healed, healed the blind. This was considered by the rabbis to be a messianic miracle that only the Messiah could perform. John eleven four it demonstrated the glory of God. In John twenty thirty and thirty one it demonstrated through miraculous evidences 
the truth of Jesus' messianic claims. And in Acts 2.22, the Father authenticates Jesus' claims. Second, Jesus' miracles were not performed randomly or indiscriminately. He did not always heal those who needed healing or perform on demand. It had to do with the plan of God and what he was teaching. Third, healing was immediate and within minutes. It wasn't spread out over weeks. Fourth, there was an abundance of healings in Matthew 5.31. Fifth, Jesus healed in various ways. He healed by touch when he touched people or commanded it. Or in one case, a woman touched the hem of his garment and she was healed. Six, but not all who were healed expressed faith or were even saved. Jesus is teaching something. The miracles were pedagogical. They were not therapeutic. The apostles, apostolic healing also established the credentials of the apostles. 2 Corinthians 12.12 says that the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. That's what distinguished a capital A apostle from a lowercase a apostle. Acts 3 and 4, Peter and John healed the lame man to gain a hearing for the gospel. It wasn't just to heal him. Acts 5.12, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. So some principles where faith of the recipient was not present at the time of healing. Now, I just have a lot of examples here I'll run through very quickly. In John four forty six to 54, the healing of the nobleman's son. Afterwards, he became a believer, but he wasn't a believer in order to be healed. The cripple at Bethesda was not a believer in John 5, 1 through 9. The demon-possessed man in Capernaum on the Sabbath. In Mark 1, 23 to 28, he was not a believer. The paralyzed man who was healed, his friends had faith, but he didn't. The centurion servant, the centurion had faith, but his servant's back home. He doesn't even know what's going on. The blind and mute man in Matthew twelve twenty two and Luke eleven fourteen, the Gadarene demoniacs uh, that being cast out of of the, um, the the man who was possessed, the deaf mute demon possessed man, they didn't have faith, but they they had the demon cast out. Feeding the five thousand, the five thousand people were all fed. They were hungry. They were starving. They wanted food right now. And Jesus fed them all, but they didn't have faith. They weren't all believers. Same with feeding the 4,000 and healing the Canaanite woman's daughter. The mother had faith, not the daughter. So we can go on. I'm going to skip through these just for time's sake. And then there were miracles where faith in the recipient was present. When he healed the leper, the leper believed. The leper had faith. Healing the crippled hand, the woman believed. Uh, Peter walking on the water, Peter was a believer, and he believed. Uh, the man born blind in John 9, uh, restoring sight to blind Bartimaeus, 
had faith. The woman with the hemorrhage came to him. She had faith. One of the ten lepers responded in faith, but the other, the other nine did not. First miraculous catch of fish. Second miraculous catch of fish. All of these indicate that that these ideas that get into Christianity via the false teaching of the charismatic Pentecostal movement have really d- distorted the whole issue. Uh, we can we can believe that God can heal, but many times God says no. He lets things take their normal course unless he has a purpose in the healing. It's not just indiscriminate. Verse 26, since Paul said, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him. I believe Paul and the other believers there prayed for him, and God responded in mercy and healed him for a reason. So as we close out, Psalm 220, I mean, Philippians 2.28 says, Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice. This is his third reason, that you may rejoice, and that I may be less sorrowful. So as he closes, he says to them, Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in high esteem. He's talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus there. Hold men like that in high esteem, mean men who serve the Lord, men and women, who serve the Lord, walk with the Lord, and that, that um, are, have humbled themselves, even to the point where it may cost them their life to serve the Lord in the work of the Lord. In verse 30, he says, because for the work of Christ, he came close to death not regarding his life. See, what did he say about, about, about Christ back in the first part of Philippians 2, about verse 8, that he didn't think that his deity was something to be grasped after. He didn't regard his life something to be grasped after. He was serving the Lord. So he says, for the, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, to supply what was lacking in your service to me. Because you couldn't come, that's not a condemnation, because you weren't able to come. He came and he's serving me, and that almost cost him his life. And that's because he was more concerned about serving the Lord than he was about uh, serving himself. And that's the point that he is making in these illustrations. So next time we come back, And we will get into the next chapter, which focuses on standing firm in the faith. And there's a lot of significant stuff that goes on in Philippians 3, a lot of significant doctrinal material there. So that is going to be fun to go through Philippians 3. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things tonight, to strengthen our faith, recognize that we're here to serve you and not ourselves, and that sometimes that may cost us. And Father, we pray that you would give us the courage of our convictions to serve you, to walk with you closely. And as we mature, we know that you will guide and direct our paths. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.